Please be seated. Great to see everyone tonight. I'd just like to draw your attention to the screen. There's a little uh, video that I'd like to show that will just set the scene, set the context for tonight's talk. While my time in America isn't directly relevant, I think it gives me an extra layer of experience to draw on. Absolutely. That's very impressive. I hope I'm not blowing my own trumpet too much here. If I had a trumpet this good, I'd be blowing it non-stop. Look, I think we're done here, so... I mean, obviously, I can't say anything official right now, but you should expect a phone call. Thank you. I just find it so difficult to boast on my CV. It's just that, as a Christian, I... Oh. What? <laughs> You're a... Christian. Yeah, okay. Uh, Is that a... No, not at all. You don't seem to mention it anywhere here. Well, why would I? No, fair point. I'm not planning to run your polymer factory along biblical lines. Oh, no. Could you just give me a second, please? <laughs> Denise, may I borrow you for a second? I'm just interviewing Patricia Hughes here. Oh, Patricia. How wonderful to meet you. Do you know, we're all so excited that you've applied for this role. It's really very flattering when somebody of your count. Oh. Yeah. Okay. There's a problem with me being a Christian, isn't there? Absolutely not, legally speaking. But you both <laughs> seem uncomfortable for some reason. Uh, do you think that it makes me untrustworthy? No. <laughs> Incompetent? Mm -mm. A bit weird? <laughs> Well, in that case, I'll just withdraw my application. Oh, now. It's funny, isn't it? It's been perfectly normal to be a Christian in this country for the last 1,500 years or so. But now, well... Really sorry about this. It's fine. I forgive you. <laughs> Lucky escape. Yeah, what a nutter. <laughs> now, that, that comedy sketch was spot on, wasn't it? Uh, increasingly in our society, uh, Christians are thought of as weird. Uh, even the bad guys. And as a result, we are tempted to be ashamed to identify ourselves as Christians. She wasn't, but we can be. Uh, have you ever been in that situation where you have been ashamed to identify yourself as a Christian? Let me tell you uh, an occasion when that happened to me. Back at university, I was part of the university football club. That's me, age 19. Uh, the university football club was not an easy environment to be a Christian. Uh, these guys were party animals, right? They drank more beer than water. Uh, if you looked up party hard in the dictionary, you'd see a picture of this team. Uh, their favourite swear word was Jesus Christ, and they used it a lot. And the only, uh, the only exposure that they had to Christian things was the chapels that they were forced to go to at school, where the chaplain never opened the Bible, and, to, uh, and the exposure to Jesus in the Jesus movies that we watched during religious education, because that's all we did. And, and the Jesus that you saw in these Jesus movies, Jesus pretty much looked like Jesus pretty much looked like a Miss Universe contestant, right? Wearing a dress, sash around the waist, matching sandals, soft skin, 
looked like the kind of guy who would get sand kicked in his face down the beach, then run home and cry to mum. Now, the guys in my football team were not interested in a guy that their mum could beat up. Now, I was the only Christian in the footy club, uh, and it was a difficult environment to be a Christian. The cartoonist for the West Australian, he did a cartoon of each of our players in our team. And this is a picture of me. Uh, Don't worry about the moustache, that's another story. But this is how the team thought of me. Dog collar and halo, because I was a Christian. They thought I was a bit of a prude. Uh, I'd save myself for my wife, all that kind of stuff. Now, one of the annual events at the club, what was was called the Triple P Night, uh, where they would get blind drunk, they would eat pies, and they would have sinful entertainment. Not a classy night. But there was a lot of peer pressure to go to these social events Because if you wanted to be part of the team, you had to do what the team did, right? My teammates asked me, are you going to the Triple P night? I said, no, I'm not going. They said, why? Now, here was my opportunity. Here was my opportunity to stand up for Christ, right? To say, the only Triple P night that Jesus wants me to go to is a prayer, praise, and preaching night, right? But... I didn't take that opportunity. What I said was, I can't go because it's my grandma's birthday dinner or something lame like that, right? At that moment, I was ashamed to identify myself as a Christian. But not the Apostle Paul. Not the Apostle Paul. We've just heard. The Apostle Paul says... I am not ashamed of the gospel. No way. I am not ashamed of it. Why? Because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. What did Paul grasp about the gospel that I didn't? We're going to have a look at that this evening. Now, we're in a series in Paul's letter to the Romans, uh, which has been described as the most important letter ever written. And it comes with a warning. If you take this letter seriously, it will irreversibly change the way you think about life. This letter has irreversibly changed the lives of some of our greatest leaders in Christian history. Augustine. This is really annoying. Martin Luther. John Calvin. Dave Skirt, and no, I'm sorry, I don't know why that, there's something wrong with this. I'm talking about some of the great Christian leaders. Uh, I don't know how they got in there, I'll have to fix that for tomorrow. Now, Martin Luther said this, Martin Luther said this, this epistle is really the chief part of the New Testament and the very purest gospel and is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word by heart, but occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. 
It can never be read or pondered too much. And the more it is dealt with, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. That's the letter that we are in. So hold on to your seats. Come along for the ride in, this, uh, in our studies on the letter to the Romans. And it will have a lasting impact on you. So quick recap from last week. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, uh, is actually the word is slave. He considers himself a slave. Called to be an apostle, one who is sent, set apart for the gospel of God. Now the word gospel in the first century was not a religious word. It was a word, as we learned last week, that means momentous news. News that affected the life of every person. In ancient times, when important events occurred in the empire, like a new Caesar coming to power, or the army had won a great victory, then the momentous news, the gospel, would be sent to the ends of the empire because it affected the lives of every citizen of the empire. Now, in the first century, of course, they didn't have electronic media where you could just send it out and everyone would know automatically. You would have to send people out by foot or by uh, horseback to the ends of the empire so that everyone in the empire would know. Now, Paul says, he is traveling around the globe telling the world the gospel, the biggest news that has ever happened and that affects the life of every person on the planet and, on, and for every person who will ever live on the planet. What is the momentous news? The kingdom of God has arrived. Jesus is the promised king who will rule forever, demonstrated by his resurrection. Because only a king who has defeated death can rule forever. And God has opened his kingdom to sinners like you and me. That is the momentous news. And the gospel is an announcement with an inbuilt summons. You see, if Jesus is the king who reigns forever, then you need to shift your allegiance to him. And you need to live very differently from how you were living before you knew that Jesus was king of kings. And that's what Paul means when he says that his aim is to bring about the obedience of faith. He's saying that responding to the gospel in faith is an act of obedience to God. Later in the letter in chapter 10, he says that unbelievers are those who do not obey the gospel. Not believing the gospel is an act of disobedience to God. He says in verse 14, this is from the ESV, I am under obligation both to Greeks and the word is barbarians. The NIV says non-Greeks, the word is barbarians. Barbarian was a word of mockery, which was used by the cultured Greeks to describe the, the, the way that uncouth foreigners sounded to their ears, right? They would talk and the Greeks would say, I can't understand you. Ba, 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 what are you saying? 
And so they were called barbarians. So Paul is saying, I'm under obligation to the cultured, to the non-cultured, to the wise, to the foolish. I'm under obligation to everyone on the planet to tell them the gospel. Now, under obligation refers to a debtor's relationship to their creditor, right? When you, if you uh, owe someone a lot of money, if you're severely in debt, then your life no longer really belongs to you, to you does it? It belongs to your creditor. You can't spend money however you want to spend it. The creditor has first and final say in how you spend your money. So Paul thought of himself as a debtor to those who had not heard about Jesus. But why did he owe them? Because he knew that he was no more deserving of salvation than they were. And this placed him under obligation to King Jesus. Paul had a bright future. He had a great education. He had great connections. He was on the way up. But his future no longer belonged to him. Every spare resource of his, every uh, ounce of energy, every moment of time belonged to his creditor, Jesus Christ, King Jesus. And every person who has received the gospel is under this same debt of obligation. Uh, A pastor in the States, David Platt, he says this, Every saved person this side of heaven owes the gospel to every lost person this side of hell. It's a powerful statement. We are under obligation. But even though we know we ought to preach the gospel, the fear of shame can make us less than eager to do it, right? And without doubt, Paul knew the temptation of holding back from preaching the gospel. Paul found in his travels, he went all around the world, he found in his travels that the news of King Jesus crucified was considered by the eyes of the world to be weak, to be offensive, to be foolish, to be contemptible, to be pitiable. Are you saying that I need to give my life to a guy who died pathetically on a cross? No thanks. No, we're telling you you've got to give your life to a guy who died on the cross and then rose again. The gospel is offensive to people. and You would have experienced that in your life. The gospel is offensive to people because it says... You have a great need that you cannot meet yourself. People don't like to hear that. The gospel is offensive to moral and religious people who think, well, I'm living a good life. I don't need a saviour. But the gospel says we are so wicked that only the death of the Son of God could save us. The gospel offends those who think they can find their own way to God, like an Oprah Winfrey type religion. You can just find your way to God any way you want. But the gospel says... You've got to find your way to God through Jesus Christ. The gospel is offensive to those who are obsessed with self-worship. The gospel says every person must worship King Jesus first. And preaching the gospel had been a real source of suffering for Paul. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul says that he received five times 
40 lashes minus one. I'm not sure how, why they described it that way. They could have just said 39. But the way they say it is 40 lashes minus one. Now, just imagine getting the 40 lashes minus one. How much pain you would go through. He, did, he got it just because he spoke the gospel. So you imagine getting 39 lashes and then thinking, well, if I'm just quiet, I won't get whipped again. It'd be a real temptation. But he doesn't shut up about Jesus. And he gets 39 lashes again. And he gets it five times. He's beaten with rods three times. He's pelted with stones. He is shipwrecked three times. He spends a night in the open sea. He's bitten by a poisonous snake. He's uh, imprisoned. And then ultimately, he is executed. And tradition tells us that he is beheaded in Rome. But Paul is not ashamed of the gospel. He's not ashamed. I couldn't stand up and say why I didn't want to go to the triple P night, but yet he goes through all that. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. Now, the word Paul uses for power here, it's a Greek word, and the word is dunamis. Can anyone think of a, an English word that uh, might use this word as a root to mean something powerful? Dynamite. Well done. It is dynamite. Now, did Paul have in mind dynamite when he wrote this letter? No, because dynamite hadn't yet been invented. But there's a reason why the inventors of dynamite used dunamis as their root word. Because dunamis means power. The gospel is powerful like dynamite is powerful. But while dynamite powerfully blows things up and, and destroys things, the gospel saves. In verse 18, Paul says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. The gospel is powerful to save us from that wrath. The gospel is so powerful, it saves people who cannot save themselves. It's the only thing that can free people from their sin, from their junk. It's the only people that can bring people from death to life. We've seen that tragic earthquake in the last week. There's death. But the gospel can bring people from death to life if they hear the gospel. Before they take their last breath, they will never die. They will live with God forever. Every person that God rescues, he rescues by the gospel. No one is rescued in any other way except through the gospel. Now, God used these verses here to convert one of the greatest leaders in Christian history. Now, look, I'm, again, I'm really sorry. It's twice in the... No, Mar, yeah, Martin Luther, I'm sorry. One of the greatest leaders in Christian history, Martin Luther. Uh, Luther was a guy who changed Christianity forever during the Reformation in 1517. Now, we did a series of sermons on this in 2017 to commemorate the 500th anniversary. And so if you don't know about the Reformation, why don't you look those sermons up? It's a really important part of your history, your heritage. 
But Martin Luther began his career by studying law, uh, but his soul was troubled because uh, he knew that one day he would face God in judgment. So he left university and he entered theological college to try and sort out his soul. And in his studies, he came across chapter 1, verse 17. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Now, the righteousness of God can refer to God's standard of righteousness that he demands of every person and that which no one can meet. And Luther hated that phrase because he'd been taught by the academics of the day that that's what it meant in this context, that the gospel reveals God's righteous standards, which we can't meet. It terrified him because he knew that he was an unrighteous sinner who fell far short of God's standards and that one day he'd be punished. And this is, this is what he said. He said, I did not love God. No, I hated God. Luther tried to satisfy God's demands. He tried to satisfy God's demands for righteousness by, by doing what Catholics call penance, which is not uh, in the scriptures, but it, it's doing things to try and work off your sins. And so what he did is he whipped himself until he bled. He would lie down in uh, the snow in the dead of winter in Germany until he would get in such a state of hypothermia that his colleagues had to carry him out before he died. But Luther found no peace. He could not be sure that he was right with God. That might be like you here today. You're not sure whether you're right with God. You don't have peace. But this is what Luther said. He said, I meditated night and day on those words until at last, by the mercy of God, I understood it. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, he who is righteous by faith shall live. I began to understand that this verse is not talking about the righteousness that God demands, but the righteousness that he freely gives to those who believe the gospel. I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. The whole of scripture took on a new meaning and whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gate of heaven. And so started the Reformation. Before he had only unrest and uncertainty, but now his conscience was at rest. Now he was certain of his salvation. That is the power of the gospel. God's kingdom has arrived and God opens up the kingdom to sinners like you and me. And the righteousness that he demands from us he gives to us. And the gospel's been powerfully working throughout history and it's powerfully working in our world right now, today. 
Uh, I'll tell you a great story. There's a maximum security prison in South Africa in, uh, uh, where inmates are on death row. And there's an inmate called Joe. And Joe, he's as hard as they come. Uh, he's in for murder. And he shows no remorse. There's a chaplain that goes to the prison. His name is Willie Dengler. And Willie goes past Joe's cell on his rounds. He says, Joe, my name's Willie. I'm the chaplain. Uh, I've got a Bible for you. Uh, okay, I'll, look, I'll just leave it here. And why don't you have a read for it? And uh, I'll come back this time next week. Just see how you went. <clears throat> so Willie goes back. He prays for Joe every day. And he comes back same time next week. And he's surprised when he gets there that Joe is sitting in his, on his bed waiting for him. He says, Joe, how'd you go with the Bible? Joe lifts up his Bible and it's torn to shreds from First three quarters of it, completely torn to shreds. He says, Joe, what happened to your Bible? Joe says, I smoked it. Willie said, what? He said, yeah, I smoked it. I didn't have any paper for cigarettes, so I smoked the pages of the Bible. He said, I started at the beginning, and I smoked all the way until I got to the gospel. And then it smoked me. Willie said, what? He said, yeah, I believed on the spot. He said, something's happened to me. My bitterness has gone. My hatred has gone. I'm a new man. Now, Willie couldn't believe his ears. Now, he should have, because he knew the gospel was the power of God, but he saw it right there, working right in front of him. Now, Joe was executed sometime later. No longer was he the brute, the hardened brute that he once was. But now he was a smiling, radiant man that was looking forward to being with his Savior for all eternity. See, that is the power of the gospel. The next time you have an opportunity to share the gospel with someone, just remember, you don't have to be the best communicator on the planet. You don't have to be... Uh, sound impressive, just announce the gospel. Let it do its work. It is powerful. Now some, some preachers don't believe the gospel is powerful and so they try and give the gospel some help. And they sugarcoat the gospel because they think that way it will be more attractive to people. A well-known American preacher gave some advice to an Australian church he said this, uh, don't tell people about the cross, it doesn't work. Just tell them that the God loves them and has a plan for them. Promise them prosperity, provide them with self-esteem, then you'll fill the pews. What do you think of that? That wouldn't have helped Joe in prison, right? Oh, God's got a plan for my life, that's fantastic. What is that exactly? I'm just about to get executed. Now, God is love is a beautiful Christian truth. But God loves you and has a plan for your life is not the gospel and it will not save. The gospel is that God's kingdom has arrived, 
Jesus is the king. He's opening up that kingdom for sinner, to sinners like you and me. Everyone is headed to hell without Jesus. But Jesus tasted hell on the cross. And it's in the true gospel that we see Jesus to be far more loving than any sugar-coated gospel. Paul says, I thank God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. Uh, Paul has not yet been to the church in Rome, as we learnt last week, but its reputation has reached him. Now you would expect that Christians who have such a faith that their reputation has gone around the world, you think they would understand the gospel, right? So why does Paul write a 16-chapter letter to a church whose faith is so strong that its reputation has gone across the world? Because you never, ever, ever, ever outgrow your need for the gospel. Never. Because the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And salvation is not just conversion. Salvation in the Bible is an umbrella term, meaning salvation of the whole of the Christian life. So the gospel brings us to conversion, and then it takes us through trials, through temptations, through judgment, through, through uh, persecution, through death, into the presence of God. That's what the gospel does. The gospel makes us Christian, it matures us as Christian, it keeps us Christian. It is the medicine that God has prescribed for us to take every day. And that's why Paul says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Rome was at the center of the most powerful empire on the planet, right? You know your history. So the church in Rome is in a position of great influence. And therefore, it was vital that its members be well-grounded, accurately grounded in the gospel. And it's only as we here at Subi Church are fully and accurately grounded in the gospel, it's only as we again and again grasp the scope and the wonder of the gospel that we will grow as Christians and that we will be fruitful. Let me finish by explaining it this way. Take a look at this slide. It looks like maths, it's not maths, okay? So don't worry, it's not maths. I just find this really helpful. Let me try and explain it. So when we're converted, we put our trust in Jesus, who has done what you and I can never do, and that is to bridge the gap between God's holiness and our sinfulness. And Christ bridges that gap through the cross. At our conversion, we don't fully appreciate the height of God's holiness or the depth of our sinfulness. And so the cross at our conversion begins small, right? Uh, in our estimation, the cross is small. But as we grasp the gospel, our awareness of God's holiness grows and our awareness of our sinfulness deepens. Now, God is not getting holier and holier, and we're not getting more sinful, but it's our awareness of it that grows as we understand the gospel. And the result of that 
is that our love for Christ grows and grows as we understand what that cross has achieved. Because we realize that the cross, we realize as God is getting holy, as our awareness of God's holiness grows and our awareness of our sinfulness grows, the cross has to get bigger to fill that gap. The cross becomes, looms larger and it becomes more central in our lives. And we grow as Christians, we become more mature. Also, when we don't have a growing understanding of the gospel, see, Christianity without a growing understanding, when we don't grow in our understanding of the gospel, the cross remains small and it doesn't get any bigger. And we try then and fill the gap which the cross fills, we try and fill it with other things, right? So we fill it with our performance. We say, so for example, religion, we say, well, if I just do these religious rituals, then God will be pleased with me. Moralism, if I just live a moral life, God will be pleased with me. Self-justification, here are the good things I've done. I'm okay with God. Legalism, if I just keep God's laws and you do it as well, well, then we'll be okay with God. Pride, well, I'm doing pretty well. I'm better than that guy. I'm not as bad as that guy. And so we try and fill the gap which the cross fills. And not having a growing understanding of Christ's work on the cross can lead us to buckle under the weight of our own sin. Because if the cross is not filling that gap, then we buckle under the weight of our own sinfulness. It can result in guilt, fear, shame, insecurity, despair. And that's why it's vital that we're fully and we are accurately grounded in the gospel and that we again and again grasp the wonder and the scope of the gospel. And that's why, verse 9, Paul says, I'm done with that. Um, Can you go to the next slide, please? God, whom I serve in my spirit, in preaching the gospel of his Son. The human spirit is the deepest part, the deepest aspect of a person, is your spirit. It's actually, we get to Romans 8, Paul tells us it's the aspect of us which relates directly to God. Our spirit cries out to God's spirit. It's the deepest dimension of a person. It's what separates us from the other animals. It's not actually a soul, our soul. It's our spirit that makes us distinctive. And it's the deepest dimension of Paul's person is engaged in the service of the gospel because he knows the gospel is the power of God. How about you? Will you give the deepest dimension of your person to serving the gospel? And what will that look like in your life? What will that look like in 2023? Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, your word, your gospel, which is so powerful. I pray, Lord, for those who are here this evening. If you're here this evening and you've never put your trust in the Lord Jesus, 
not confident that your sins are paid for by the Lord Jesus, then can I offer you right now an opportunity to put your trust in Jesus. Jesus, who has paid for your sins on the cross. The gospel is powerful. If you believe in this gospel, you trust in Jesus and you submit to Jesus the King, then you, your sins are forgiven and you are saved. I'm going to give you an opportunity to, to do that right now. You might want to pray in the quietness of your own heart. Dear God, I understand that I fall short of your righteous requirements. I'm sorry. Thank you for sending Jesus to die for me. I submit to him as my king. I choose to live for him from this day on. Amen. If you've prayed that prayer, I just want to please let us know on your connect card. Please come and see me. See one of the leaders. We'd love to help you in the next phase of your life. For those of us who are here tonight who already are Christian, Paul has told us it is so vital that we are fully and accurately grounded in the gospel, that we again and again grasp the wonder and the scope of the gospel. Are you doing that? Are you searching the scriptures? Are you being disciplined in trying to ground yourself in the gospel we need that otherwise we will not be fruitful we will not grow as Christians so I pray for each person here tonight Lord that we might grow in the gospel that this church might grow in its grounding in the gospel that we might again and again grasp the wonder and scope of the gospel and as we do that as a church we would see the power of the gospel work amongst us individually and as a church in our community. So I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.